The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. This week, focused on the history of the world since 1870 and President Joe Biden's efforts to be the most pro-Labour president in living memory. We're all about variety here on Stephanomics, no two episodes alike. If you're someone who looks at the state of the world and wonders how on earth did we get here, the economist and blogger Bradford DeLong has a book to sell you, slouching towards utopia. The way he tells it, You can understand most of what's happened in the world in the past 150 years or so with the help of just two Central European thinkers and one near-universal human trait, fear of freeloading or mooching. He and I had a long conversation about all of that recently, which you can hear in a few minutes. But first we look at one of the many factors that have made the upcoming US midterms so hard to call. President Biden's hot and cold relationship with the labour unions. Bloomberg US economy reporter Molly Smith has the story, much of which was reported by her colleague Katya Dmitrieva in the union stronghold of Macomb County, Michigan. That's what unions are about, in my view, about providing dignity and respect for people who bust their neck. That's why I created the White House Task Force on Worker Organization Empowerment, to make sure the choice to join a union belongs to workers alone. When President Joe Biden came into office, he promised to be the most pro-union president in U.S. history. And he's ticked a lot of boxes in his first two years. He's been vocal about the importance of unions. He started a labor task force and adopted many of its proposals. And most recently, his labor chief, Marty Walsh, helped secure a deal for railway workers threatening to strike. But several important policies, like a higher federal minimum wage and laws that would make it easier for workers to unionize, were abandoned or remain stuck in Congress. Democrats' labor record under Biden will be one of the many things that American workers will weigh as they vote in the midterm elections in November. And too often, workers have been uninspired by the president and his sympathetic ear. In Macomb County, Michigan, a historical auto union stronghold, and the site of a renewed organizing drive among service sector workers, things don't look good for Democrats. Here's Alyssa Coakley, a worker at Starbucks in Macomb. I think when it comes to labor, it's been all very for show, like performative a little bit. Coakley led a campaign to unionize her cafe, where she's a shift supervisor. While they were successful, She and her colleagues say the company is dragging its feet in bargaining. In other words, it's not really any easier to unionize under Biden than previous presidents. Um, Like, I know, like, recently he invited, like, a a Starbucks worker, like an Amazon worker to the White House. And it was like, okay, that's cool that you got to meet with them. But it's like, what more are you doing for, for us? Showing support only goes so far. Union membership has declined for decades. In the 1980s, 
One in five U.S. workers was part of a union. Today, it's one in ten. The AFL-CIO, the country's largest labor union, has promised to grow union ranks by one million workers over the next decade. Government policies could prove decisive for whether or not that happens. I think the general consensus in industry is that unions create conflict between employees and and employers. That was William McKenzie, CEO of Left Coast, a cannabis company in Michigan. And I think that the opposite can be true if an employer supports a union, the organizing of a workforce. So by supporting the workers, supporting the union, making them feel supported, we really wind up with a a situation where we don't have any turnover. The overall consensus is that we care about our employees and the employees appreciate that. One thing workers want to see is holding companies accountable. The government's enforcement arm, the National Labor Relations Board, remains chronically underfunded, even under Biden. That means fewer people to investigate companies like Starbucks and fewer people to help workers unionize. In Macomb, that's important for workers like Mike Davison. He helped unionize his cannabis retail store, only the second in the state of Michigan. The NLRB was instrumental for them. Staff answered questions, hosted the vote, and are now looking into a complaint filed by workers against the company at another location for coercive statements. Overall, though, Davison wants to see the president focus more on workers and do it sooner rather than later. And honestly, I'm not going to wait for somebody in a big white house to help me. I'm going to do it right now. I would love a pro-union candidate. I'd love there to be a lot more focus politically Mm. on workers, the working class, the people who show up to their job do work, as opposed to, you know, benefiting the employer class that hires people and makes money from them. There's enough people looking out for them. They have their stake. They have their money. They have their security. Mm. I need someone looking out for me. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Many listeners to this podcast will already know the economic historian and commentator Bradford DeLong, professor of economics at the University of California in Berkeley and author of the long-running popular Grasping Reality blog, which I see is now a Substack newsletter. So I'm delighted to be able to talk to him about his new book, Slouching Towards Utopia. Brad, thanks so much uh, for coming on Stephanomics. Um, it's my great pleasure to be here, although in this metaverse age, here is something that is fraught with complications. <laughs> uh, slouching Towards Utopia is its a history of the 20th century that I would say speaks very directly to today's generation of politicians and economists, not least because you, you've actually lengthened the century to include most of them, because your 20th century extends from 1870 to 2010. I mean, there's a lot to talk about in your book, but I, I guess we should start by asking you to explain briefly why you think that period marks a discrete period of economic history. Because before 1870, our global rate of technological progress was less than a quarter of what it has been 1870, which meant that before 1870, there was zero chance that humanity would ever be able to bake a sufficiently large economic pie so that everyone could even possibly have enough. You know, this governance before 1870 is how does an elite manage to run a force and fraud con game on the rest of humanity so they at least can have enough. But after 1870, we have the possibility of having a truly human world, of baking a sufficiently large economic pie. And then all we have after that are the minor problems of figuring out how to slice the pie, how to equitably distribute things. And then how to taste the pot, you know, how to use our immense wealth and technological powers to enable us all to live lives wisely and well. You make the claim that 1870 is the hinge of global economic history. And that's obviously on the basis of what you just said. But why 1870? Um, because that's when the last three institutions needed to support Economic growth at more than 2% per year, economic growth that doubles humanity's technical competence every generation, economic growth that makes us potentially twice as rich as our parents were and does that over and over and over again. That's when the last three things fall into place. Um, and so the doubling time of humanity's technological progress is no longer measured in millennia or hundreds of years or even in the 200 years it would have taken to double humanity's technological competence during the Industrial Revolution. But it happens every single generation, and then it happens again and again. And you say yourself that if you're focused on different aspects of history, you probably come up with different dates. And we know that sort of famously the Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm focused on geopolitics, and then that led him to shorten his 20th century when he wrote about it from 1914 to 1989. Now, as, we, as we've gathered, your focus is on 
the economic and technological upheavals in this century. And you have got some great facts to drive that home, basically that there has been as much or more technological advance since 1870 as in all the years before that. But one one point that comes through again and again, I found reading the book, is that our politics, our political institutions have not been good at keeping up with that degree of economic upheaval. In some way, how could they? Whatever institutions or society we had a generation ago, even if they worked then, they won't fit the economy now. And whatever we manage to cobble together now, it won't fit the economy in a generation. You know, and so it's frantic attempts to cobble together on the fly a society that sort of works and kind of holds together. You know, that's, I think, the big story of political economy since 1870. There's a sort of dialectic running through your book uh, between the two contrasting theories of actually two Central European thinkers, the Austrian economist Friedrich von Hayek and the less well-known, but I agree with you, I think, underrated Hungarian philosopher Karl Polyani. So, So tell us about that. Why do those two thinkers help us understand that dynamic you just talked about? Friedrich von Hayek, um was an absolute genius, was the first person to see that if you properly set up the market, so you align prices with social values, then the market is uniquely great as a crowdsourcing mechanism for mobilizing human ingenuity. You know, instead of having a few people at the top issuing orders or a bureaucracy following standard procedures, um, in which case the only brain power that's really applied in a bureaucracy is that of those who set up the system. With a market, you are crowdsourcing everyone's human brain and asking everyone, what can you think of to do to help the situation along? And thus you've pushed out the power to act to the periphery of the society where the information is, you know, because um, God knows what the people at the center um, actually believe what is actually going on out there in the real world. And you also solve the problem of having the people who are actually doing the work doing what they're supposed to, because if things are properly aligned, then they make a great deal of money and have you know, social power as a result, if they in fact do the things that advance social values in general. Um, so Friedrich von Hayek was great. He saw this. He also very strongly believed to the day he died that that's all the market can do, right? It can't do anything like social justice. Um, and if we ask it to do social justice, we destroy its ability um, to do the market, to do to create the wealth the market can um, and put us all on the road to serfdom. So we have Friedrich von Hayek, um, who basically says the market can be great and we have to worship it. You know, the market giveth, the market taketh away. Blessed be the name of the market. Um, that's all we can do. We got to accept that's the best we can do. Um, but Karl Polanyi said, wait a minute, that doesn't work. Um, you have a market society um, and that dissolves every single form of social power other than wealth. That means that there are no rights that are respected except for property rights. And the only property rights that are worth anything are those that may help you make things for which the rich have a serious Jones. You know, and people simply will not stand for that. You're going to get a very powerful reaction 
It may be smart, it may be stupid, it may be genocidal, it may be benevolent, um, but that you know, an attempt to impose the von Hayekian market view of the world will blow up and explode. And indeed, a huge amount of the politics um, of the world since 1870 has been various people for whom the market is good, saying we should definitely expand um, its role and all kinds of counter reactions of one sort or another. And it's a frame in which you can make a good deal of sense of a huge amount of stuff that's been going on since 1870. I noticed the review in The Economist of your book was titled, titled Money Can't Buy You Love. I mean, is that basically the conclusion of the long century? We look at all that technological change and then we look at the state of our politics, the state of our con contentment around the world, this lack of correlation between the level of income and happiness. Do you think that is that, that The Economist has grasped the fundamental point of your book? I do, I do, I do. The thing that astonishes me is, I suppose, how narrow and uneven our progress is, that we've managed to boost human life expectancy from 25 years to 70 years or so, and by and large spread that throughout the entire globe. Um, but then we also, although we have a huge world, a world with $12,000 per year or so as average income per capita, um, it's extraordinarily unequally distributed around the world. Um, our ability to produce, even though it's mighty, the distribution is absolutely stunningly awful. So we've solved the problem of public health to a great degree. We've solved the problem of producing enough. We definitely have not solved the problem of slicing, of equitably distributing it, either around the world or Within this country, since I can go outside the door of my extremely nice house here in Berkeley, California, and all I have to do is walk a mile to find someone living in a box. Right. Um, and then, of course, the problem of actually utilizing it. Of taking wealth and using it to create a good life for yourself rather than a life in which, you know, um, for some reason, what you thought would make you happy does not. Um, and in which your the technological powers, the ability to manipulate nature and command the attention and assistance of others that you have is just more rope with which you can hang yourself in some particular way. And it's that extraordinary disjunction um, when people back in the past thought the big problem was the one of production. And once you'd solve that, everything would be fine. You know, that strikes me as most interesting and most terrible about the long 20th century. I should say to anyone listening, I mean, there's what you've just said, but also um, from reading the book, I mean, you absolutely succeed in having very interesting nuggets as well as a driving narrative on pretty much every page. But the, the one example that you mentioned, Herbert Hoover, I had no idea that he had this whole other history um, in China, uh, taking over various uh, my, crucial uh, bits of the of mining industry in 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 China before and where he'd come from. What was he, son of a blacksmith or the blacksmith in Owen, Iowa? Yes, as one of my ex roommates said, "Come for the ad for the high abstract political economy theory. Stay for the Herbert Hoover gossip." Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. If technology is to some extent driving the upheaval in the or the challenges to the political system there's also a human nature piece that you identify and what i thought was a pretty crucial um observation towards the end of the book which we use which is really comes down to the fear of moochers being a sort of driving source of instability. And you say humans, at least we humans, see society as a network of reciprocal gift exchange relationships. And as a general principle, we agree that all of us do much better if we do things for one another rather than requiring that individuals do everything for themselves. We don't always want to be the receiver. We don't always want to be the giver. And we tend to disapprove whenever we see a situation where we think someone is following a strategy of always being a receiver. And I guess the summary of that is fear of mooching. So that did that was very resonant to me. I mean, that did seem to me a fundamental issue, which has perhaps been exacerbated by technological change. Yes. And I, um, in fact, I think I stole this from the wonderful Paul Seabright, who has an excellent book called In the Company of Strangers, you know, which makes this point, among others. But there is an extremely strong sense that at least those of us whose cultures spring in the Indo-European part of the tree, that the idea of a guest and a host and reciprocal obligations between them is very, very, very strong. Um, and that means that, you know, um, that we are very strongly committed to not just think that people deserve things, that we deserve things based on how we have, we have acted and how we are, you know, but that other people deserve things based on how they have acted, you know, and how they are. And especially that other people do not, should not have more than they deserve. For example, the surprising fuss in the past two weeks over what is a small um, shift in America's resources that moves $35 billion a year from the federal government to people with student loan balances. We have Ted Cruz there saying that it's an absolute offense to give $10,000 to you know, a slacker barista who majored in lesbian dance therapy. You know, um, 
Now, look, I mean, Ted Cruz is and does is, in fact, a second generation, you know, Cuban, Canadian, American immigrant who has kind of clawed himself up from a position of substantial social disadvantage um, to a position of wealth and eminence. Um, and he maneuvers, but he maneuvers in a world in which there are also people like me. And my grandfather was at one time the richest man between Tampa and Orlando and hired the engineers who created and owned the patent for the um, technology for taking sulfur out of natural gas. So you can use natural gas without making your house smell like the pit of hell. Um, and from him, I've gotten $10,000 a year, not once, but it's practically every single year of my life. Um, and is Ted Cruz incredibly angry with me? Um, because by now I have gotten 62 times what the mythical slacker barista who measured in lesbian dance therapy at Sarah Lawrence um, got. You know, no, he isn't mad at all. It's interesting because one of the th- what I was one of the things I was going to say was that possibly the other bit of human nature that you're battling with often when you have the kind of mindset that you have when you look at the world today and the desire for greater, more equal equal distribution of income and and power um, is you are almost always also battling with people's desire to help their kids. And that is a basic human desire that it gets in the way of otherwise quite obviously sensible taxes on capital and wealth and indeed on the inheritance that you just talked about, even when it's a tax on wealth that is affecting a very small percentage, the fear that it will interfere with people's efforts to improve the lives of their kids and give them a, an upper hand is, is a pretty potent political force. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, I, I had a debate with my friend Glenn Hubbard you know, over this at the Baker Center um, in Texas a while ago, you know, and I was pointing out to him that um talking for I was strongly advocating a return of the inheritance tax. Um, and I used Glenn as an example, saying that you know, as a longtime consultant and as dean of Columbia's business school, he's rather rich. And yet his parents have lots of other, you know, educational um, and kind of um, educational and cultural advantages. And he has raised his children very well you know, for success in this world. And so why should they also get you know, the privilege of a substantial inheritance from Glenn when there are people for whom, you know, single mothers for whom an extra forty dollars so they can take their kids out to McDonald's one extra time um, would be worthwhile. And Glenn's reaction struck me as very interesting. And it was, you know, yes, that the cultural capital that you contribute to your children by how you raise them is overwhelmingly by far the most important part of what you do. Um, so then financial inheritances are kind of a second or third order thing, and we shouldn't worry about them and shouldn't tax them. But then if they're not important, then it doesn't matter so much to tax them. <laughs> And, you know, um, Glenn is not dumb, but still you can see, um, you can see his mind trying to cling to not reaching the conclusion that he ought to be in favor of inheritance taxes. Because if he were in favor of them, he would in some way failing to, failing his duty to his kids. Um, and yeah, you know, we are, we are network, a network species, um, structured for, in, 
guest host gift exchange relationships. And we are a family species, you know, structured across time in who is related to who. You know, so much so that we find it very hard to assemble a large scale political organization without turning it into some kind of fictitious kinship, you know, organization. Um, that gives us hope, right? Because right now our economy is so complex and so complicated that we really are engaged in a gift exchange relationship um, with the people 10,000 miles away, right? There is someone whose house is underwater in Pakistan right now who probably did something, we wove the wool, that could have been in the carpet that my feet are now resting on. Um, you know, and we also are extremely closely related, right? I'm told there's more genetic diversity in a single baboon troop than in the entire human race um, as of now. So we ought to be able to turn these things toward, you know, mutual benefit and social solidarity. Um, yet we have a hard time doing so. And it seems that we've, uh, if we need some kind of mutual respect to uh, carve out a different direction, we're we're quite far away from that. If if more, if we increasingly feel we're surrounded by moochers. Yes, yes, yes. Or we're we're a fear. We fear that we are moochers. So briefly, point to us some sort of straws in the wind or chinks of light where people have actually are recognizing that where you think there's signs of, of, of hope that we could be moving in a better direction in some parts of the world, some or some battle. Well, the incredible, um, incredible technological competence of humanity today absolutely astonishes me and the extraordinarily fall in the price of renewable energy you know that has happened in the past 15 years gives me enormous hope you know that it is 29 years ago you know i was tramping through the halls of the capitol building um trying to help you know, carrying spears for Larry Summers and others as they tried to lobby and hold the Democratic coalition together for the Clinton reconciliation bill, including the BTU tax. But we got within one vote of getting the BTU tax in 1993. And back then, we strongly believed, I strongly believed, that you needed not just a carrot or a stick in order to deal with global warming. You know, that it was going to be nasty and expensive to shift the economy away to a less energy intensive configuration simply because all the stored sunlight in coal and oil is such a great way of accessing solar power, albeit the solar power of the sun from half a billion years ago, um, and that there really was going to be no substitute. Well, lo and behold, now there is, and now we don't need the stick. All we need is the carrot. All we need is a little bit of subsidies to make investments that make sense on their own. And we can move extremely rapidly to um, keep ourselves from cooking the planet much more. You know, that gives enormous hope. Another good straw in the wind from the Steve Jobs archive. Um, you know, a email Steve Jobs sent to himself in 2010 
um, that begins, I grow little of the food I eat, of the little I do grow. I do not breed or perfect the seeds. I do not make any of my own clothing. I speak a language I did not invent or refine. I did not discover the mathematics I use. I am protected by freedoms and laws I did not conceive of or legislate. Um, and, you know, here is Steve, who in the libertarian iconography is one of the great heroes, you know, one of the job creators, one of the John Galtz, who by his sheer brain and force of personality, you know, accomplished huge amounts of stuff. Um, you know, one of the bosses who deserves to have as much as possible. You know, and he did not view it this way. He recognized that he was just, you know, that he was indeed, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, as Sir Isaac Newton put it. And that without the giants on whose shoulders he was standing on, he was unable to do pretty much, and he would have not have been able to do anything. And the fact that we have that consciousness, that we have that powers, that can we can bring out those sides of our fear and of what otherwise comes out as fear and suspicion of others getting above themselves is I does I think provide great cause for hope. Brad DeLong. Thanks very much. That's it for Stephanomics. Next week, more on the US and maybe Brazil too. Who knows? But check out the Bloomberg News website for a lot more economic news and views on the global economy and follow at economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Summer Sadi, Yang Yang and Magnus Henriksen. Special thanks to Bradford DeLong, Katya Dmitrieva and Molly Smith. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.